We are in Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be reading verses 5 through 15. So if you would get that text ready to go, uh, just as we normally do, I'm going to read this out loud if you'd follow along, and then we will stop and, and pray and ask the Lord for his help. So uh, this is all Jesus speaking here in this text. Matthew chapter six, starting in verse five. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for this morning that you've made, that we can gather together here in Jesus' name and experience your presence, the power of your ministry to us. Lord, thank you for your word, this miracle that we have sitting in our laps, your very words spoken for us. Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that's been given to us to trust in Christ, that we could be led by you in the most intimate and personal and powerful way, that you would live in us, teach us, convict us of sin and of righteousness, show us how to live, always spurring us on and in creating faith and passion for your name. And Lord, this morning, we want to ask for no less than that we all would be taught by you. Not that we would just uh, have one person giving his opinions of your word, but that you yourself, by your Holy Spirit, would teach all of us what you said, what you meant by it, how we can believe and obey, enjoy you and glorify your name in our actual lives. We love you, Lord. We praise you. You're worthy. And we say all these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so... Uh, like I said, we've been working through this series of teachings from Jesus, and you may recognize uh, when Jesus says uh, not to be like the hypocrites, and then uh, he says uh, that you should pray in secret, and when your Father who sees in secret will reward you, you may, uh, your mind may go back, that may send you back a few weeks to uh, the passage just before this, uh, when Jesus is talking about giving to the needy and doing righteous works or good deeds um, in secret so that your Father will see in secret and reward you and so that you won't just be acting hypocritically and acting so that others will see you and admire you or appreciate you, think highly of you, and then that's your whole reward. Whatever admiration you received from people, that's it. And we were warned by Jesus not to do good works in public so that others would see. Of course, it's okay if they do, but not to do them so that they would be seen by others. We're warned about this. 
when we broadcast, post, tweet, chat about, casually reference our good deeds, Jesus says whatever admiration we get from others, that's the whole reward that we will receive. No heavenly reward, no well done, good and faithful servant for those good deeds. Instead, he says, we should be doing our righteous works in secret. And you remember we said that idea of doing righteous works in secret is so antithetical to the way the world says we should live and move in the world, that we should be protecting having secret sin, secret brokenness, but making sure to be publicly righteous. And here Jesus is flipping that on its head and saying, no, you should be confessing your sin and protecting your secret righteousness. He says, confess your sin, hide your righteousness. The opposite of the world. This pleases God because of one particular reason. Because it is sincere. Because it's sincere. Because nobody out of sincerity hides their righteousness and confesses their sin and weakness. Nobody does that out of sincerity. They do that out of self-preservation, trying to protect your reputation, trying to look good in front of others. But because of the sincerity of what Jesus is teaching, if we obey this, this pleases God. Because it is not for self, it is for God. It's not self-exalting, it's God-exalting. And now Jesus is gonna apply this same teaching to prayer. So here we go, verses five and six. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Now, let me stop for a minute. There's nothing wrong with public prayer if it's sincere. But when it's done to be seen by others, then it's insincere, and whatever reward you receive, that's it. Um, let me also stop and just in, in line and keeping with what Jesus is teaching us here, let me confess that I struggle with why it is that when I pray in public, it tends to be more eloquent than when I pray in private. You ever notice that about yourself? Why is it that when we're praying in groups, we're like, oh, Lord of hosts, Father God Almighty, Abba, Father, uh, Yeshua, you know, why, why are we... And then when we pray in private, why is it so much more gutty, so much more choppy? It's just, it's really just from down deep. And sometimes we don't even know how to say we stutter. Sometimes we're quiet for long periods, never in public. I, I think we need to challenge ourselves if our public praying is really sincere. Now, if you just pray really eloquently in private, then this... Forget about it, that was, that was not for you. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward, but when you pray, uh, sorry, verse six, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Uh, so in verse seven here, these, uh, this reference to Gentiles and how they pray, heaping up empty phrases, what Jesus is referring to is that the Gentiles, pagan idolaters, not people who actually worship the true and living God, these people would have these prayer rituals where they would just repetitively say the same things over and over and over again hoping that they could somehow uh, talk their gods into doing what they were asking. They still do this all over the world, these prayer rituals, over and over again, believing somehow that there is power in their repetition, that their God will hear them because of their enormous heap of phrases, not because he cares for them. You see the distinction, the, the contrast that Jesus is creating. To come at God with some kind of manipulative strategy 
uh, over and over again, saying the same things in some kind of repetitious ritual that is not a sincere belief that God will hear you, respond to you, provide for you, answer you because of love or because of care, but he is some distant, far-off cosmic force that has to be kind of like, have you ever seen like New York Stock Exchange the, on the floor, the people just waving their hands, making all kinds of crazy signals and screaming in the midst of a crowd? It's almost as if this is how the Gentile idolaters, pagan people, were coming at the gods that they believed in. They had to somehow vie for his attention. They went with like the hungry little kid strategy. Can I have a snack? Can I have a snack? Can I have a snack? I'm so hungry. Mom, please, can I have a snack? Can I have a snack? I'm so hungry. You don't understand how hungry I am. Mommy, please. I'm assuming actually that these Gentiles saw how effectively their kids broke them down and they were like, let's try this with the gods. This works in a sick kind of way. But Jesus says, for this one very important reason, sincerity, not to be like them. Do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. He knows what you need before you ask him. So we don't need to employ some kind of subversive strategy when we pray as if God needs to be talked into giving us what we need. I, I want, okay, I know we do this all the time, but I'm gonna ask you right now to not be in this thing where there's the person preaching and you're there sitting and this is sermon time. I'm gonna ask you to just be a person in a room full of people here with me and think about when you pray, how often you feel a desperation that's not rooted in faith, but rooted in a fear that God won't hear you or give you what you need. And that you're pleading with him, not because somehow you were commanded to or taught to by Jesus. You're not being like that persistent widow who keeps going to the judge, believing in his authority and his power, so making an appeal but instead you're pleading out of fear that God won't give you unless you keep asking. You need this thing and he's withholding it from you. But Jesus says here, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Knows what you need before you ask him. Again, I wanna ask you to stop and not let that fly over your head or just be a familiar biblical phrase. You realize that when you ask God for something, he already knew you were gonna ask. That when you realize you have a need, God already knew that need. He's actually the one who brought the need to your attention. It's not the other way. So we, we, Jesus is saying, don't come to God frantic, believing you've discovered a need that you have to talk him into supplying. Instead, understand your father already knows all your needs before you come to him. There's a difference not just in verbiage, when you pray that way, there's a difference in attitude, the security that you feel. I am established in God's grace, I'm his child, he loves me, he knows all my needs. Now he's brought this one to my attention, I'm gonna go to him with it. There's so much more security and comfort in coming to God with that realization. Because remember, we're not talking about manipulation. It, it doesn't depend on you whether or not God will know your need or supply your needs, it depends on God. What we're talking about here is our realization of the facts of who God is. His sovereign, providential, loving care for his people that exists whether we realize it or not. We're just trying to realize who God is when we pray to him. So when we realize we need something, we need to also be aware that God has known about this need since eternity past. 
He has just now brought it to our attention and we don't need to come with some kind of persuasive ritual like we're trying to summon the attention of some far off aloof deity. We simply need to come to him with sincere expressions of what it is we know we need by the grace of him bringing it to our attention. You notice what he calls him here. Your father, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Now remember who's speaking, God the son. God the son whose father is God in every possible way we could imagine. No one ever denies that, nobody ever feels like that's not true. Jesus is the son of God and here he's saying, listen, when you're praying, remember your father knows what you need before you ask him. Your father. God is a father who plays, pays close attention to the needs of his children. He pays close attention, like the kind of close attention that only an all-knowing, all-seeing, all-present, all-powerful kind of father can give, which none of us has on earth, amen? I am an earthly father and I know, I know with absolute confidence that I don't know all the needs of my kids. I can't possibly always know what they need, right when they need it. In fact, even before they need it, I know it. I can't be that kind of father, but we have a father who is all-knowing, all-seeing, all-present, all-powerful, and he knows our needs before we ask him. So then, we simply need to come with these sincere expressions of what God has graciously brought to our attention. Then as this bookend on the other side of the prayer here in Matthew 6, Jesus gives another warning about sincerity, verses 14 and 15. Would you read it with me? For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses, which is isolated, terrifying, right? You just isolate that scripture and that is a horrifying concept coming from the actual mouth of God. But if you understand it in the context of all of scripture, all of Jesus' teaching, what we know about God's faithfulness, superseding our faithfulness. He's not depending on us, counting on us to always get it right and do things the right way. And if you perform a certain way, then I will be your father. But we know that he's our father by his own determination and will, his own love and mercy for us, rooted in the gospel and what Christ has done, a finished work of love for us, his death on the cross in our place for our sins. That can't be undone. The resurrection of Christ the firstborn from among the dead. We know that these gospel truths can't be undone and here Jesus isn't saying, if you forgive others, then the gospel will be true for you. What he's talking about, again, is sincerity in prayer. Coming to God sincerely in prayer because imagine if you come to God and you want to be forgiven but you're unwilling to forgive those who've sinned against you, then we're just hypocritical, aren't we? Jesus is saying so. We're hypocritical in our prayer. God will refuse to answer an insincere plea for forgiveness. He will refuse to answer that. He will first teach you to forgive and to understand your own need for forgiveness so that your plea is sincere and coming from faith in Christ and then Again, better than some ritualistic form of prayer. Every day I need to wake up and ask God to forgive me. And if I do, he'll have to. God says, no, that's not how this works. When you understand what you're asking for, then we're, we're dealing with sincere pleas for mercy. But a person hypocritically coming to God going, God, I'm just not in a place where I can forgive this person. They've hurt me too badly but I want you to forgive me of my sin, well then what is God saying? Oh, your sin, your sin is not that bad. 
so it can be forgiven, but their sin is too bad for forgiveness? Do you understand forgiveness? Do you understand why Christ had to die for forgiveness to happen? Because it is all an egregious affront to the holiness of God. If we don't understand our own sin being as bad as the sin of others, then we don't even know what we're asking for when we ask God to forgive us. It's easy to forgive me, God. I know you could could do that on a Monday morning. But I can't forgive this other person. So this is about sincerity, these bookends, not the hypocrisy, the manipulative, ritualistic form of prayer, trying to talk God into doing something that he didn't know about. And it's not this insincere form of prayer which is full of pride and, and not even knowing what you're asking for. Jesus is adamantly teaching here to be sincere in prayer. And then starting in verse nine, he says, pray then like this. Pray then like this. Now, I I know that we're all very familiar. uh, If you've spent, you know, 15 minutes in church, then you're familiar with the Lord's Prayer. But I want to ask you, again, even in this moment, to renew your commitment and your desire to being taught by the Holy Spirit this morning. Not just, this is not a refresher course. We want to be taught by the Spirit of God through the teaching of Christ this morning. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven. Or if you grew up King James, then you just can't get it out of your head, our Father which art in heaven. And I know you're in the room. I know you're in the room and every time you hear this, you can't help but say art. And it just is irking you. But hark, we useth not thy ancient translation. Dear brethren, be not ye troubled in thy hearts, for lo, verily doth the ESV sufficeth. (laughs) It's not better, it just sufficeth. To get even more ancient, okay, Jesus is speaking here in Aramaic. And Matthew, when he translated Jesus' teaching from Aramaic into Greek, so that it could be more widely distributed in written form, because that was the academic language of the day, right? The New Testament was written in Greek. When he translated it into Greek, the word that he used here is pater, and and it's translating Jesus' Aramaic word, Abba, And these words mean what you would expect father, like pater is where we get paternal. It means father. But the interesting thing here is not the English or the Greek necessarily, but the actual word in Aramaic that Jesus used, Abba. The reason why this is so interesting, the reason why it's so important is that it is the common way that people referred to their fathers in Jesus' time. It's the common way. It's, it's, not, um, it, it's not just uh, this kind of elevated word only used for God or only used for your father when he's like super mad at you and you wanna make sure you're being super respectful. It's the common way that people, both children and adults, would refer to their father. Jesus used the common word people use to refer to their fathers because he doesn't want us, again, to think of God as some distant figurative father, but as an actual father, because that's what he is. He's our actual father. Our father in heaven is the father of Jesus, and he's the very real, actual father of us who believe in him. Now, I realize that when Jesus says this, when I say this to you, I I realize that some of you in the room just had a horrible experience growing up with your father. Maybe you didn't grow up with a father around at all. So this concept, it doesn't just naturally provide some form of comfort for you. Oh yeah, it's just such a rich, comforting thing for me to imagine God as my father. For some of you, it may be that way. By God's grace, 
Maybe you had a father who was just really loving, really caring, really attentive to your needs. And so this is an, is an easy kind of thing for you to think of. But for others of you, you know, a father is not a concept that rests in your heart peacefully. Maybe you see a father as domineering, as angry, or as distant, never around, unfamiliar, just pops into life at inconvenient times and expects to have all your attention. Maybe for some of you, you've already lost your father. Maybe he died. So again, the concept of a father incites some feeling of pain. But that's why it's important for us to remember God is not an earthly father. He is our heavenly father. Our father in heaven. Not our father who is just like any father on earth who could be really great or a total jerk or dead by now. Our father in heaven, he's different. He's above, he's better, he's perfect in all his ways, always loving, always persistent in loving his children. He is our father in heaven. Abba. Not irreverent in any way, but very intimate, familiar, close. He is father. Now again, here we go. And when we hear Jesus teach these things and he's teaching us how to pray with sincerity, with sincerity and coming to God, seeing him as a father who's close, who loves us, there's a, there's a few different things that can happen in our hearts. If we're just being real with each other this morning, there's a few different ways that can strike our hearts. And I know that for myself, when I'm suffering from self-condemnation, that's not coming from God, but it's my life is filled with guilt over my sin and I'm not trusting in the finished work of Christ to supply forgiveness for me, grace for me, that God loves me even though I have sinned. I know that when I hear God being close and being intimate and being a father who loves me, is always aware of my needs even before I ask him. For me, there can be some discomfort about that kind of closeness. I don't know how that strikes each one of you this morning to think of God being that close, that intimate with you, that intricately involved in the details of your life, not just the practicalities, but the thoughts, the inner being, the motivations, the things that freak you out, the things that draw you in, the things that make you happy, the things that terrify you. The kind of things that you just can't think about. He is intimately familiar as a heavenly father with all of who you are. Our father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Or another way you could say that. Our Father in heaven, let your name be kept holy. Or even another way, our Father in heaven, let your name be revered as holy. The desire of the redeemed heart, the person who is trusting in God as their Father through Christ, wants to see God glorified in the world that his name would be revered as holy, that he would be worshiped, loved, magnified, called upon, believed in. We want this from God. Before we ever ask a thing, Jesus is teaching us, before you come to him with your needs, remember who he is. Delight in him. Be thankful for him. Remember the gospel, what he's done for you to draw near to you in grace and draw near to him as your father who loves you. 
This is the desire of the redeemed heart, to see God glorified. Psalm 35, 27 says, let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Those who delight in his righteousness. We can delight ourselves in who God is. We can enjoy him. Enjoy him and enjoy his glory and be glad when he's glorified. Be glad when he's magnified, exalted. Even when life is difficult, when we're suffering, when there are deep trials that affect us, we can be thankful for who God is. We can delight in him, in his righteousness, take joy in that. And then here Jesus says, in prayer, as a model, to the Lord, God the Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come. Whoa, there's a roach. <laughs> How many of y'all saw that before me? You traitors. You backstabbing. Deserters of the faith. <laughs> the servant of all that is evil crept up right on me as I'm preaching God's word and you just watched it happen. Not one plea of intercession came from you all. He was walking right towards me. He'll be fine. Every time a roach sneaks up on me, I think, how long ago was it that he crept out of the pit of hell? Is he still hot? They can survive anything. All right. Your kingdom come, Lord. Oh, the day when there's no more roaches. All right. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I've, okay, now stop again, stop. Think of this as a prayer to God. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That your plea with God would be that his will, his will would be accomplished as thoroughly, as authoritatively, as comprehensively as it is accomplished in heaven where he is enthroned on high, surrounded by angels worshiping his name day and night. Where he is unquestioned on earth, even his existence is questioned. In heaven, Every utterance, every desire, every bit of his will is unquestioningly, authoritatively, comprehensively accomplished without a doubt. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now that that requires something of us to pray that. It requires something, something deep and something unnatural. It, it requires us to have absolute wholehearted trust that God's will is good. It requires that of us. Otherwise, again, we're being insincere. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as authoritatively, as comprehensively, as unquestioningly, as immediately as it is done in heaven where you're enthroned. To ask God for that requires us to believe that his will is good. If we don't believe that his will is good, then what are we asking him for? Please always do what you want, even though I know sometimes you get it wrong. 
please always, always have your way, even though sometimes I question your motives. This requires us to have wholehearted, absolute trust that the will of God, the desire of God, the plan of God is good. Not just survivable, not tolerable, good. Something to be desired. You know? Let your will be done, says, I desire your will. I want what you want. I align myself with you. What's your plan? That's my plan. If my plan disagrees, Lord, help me abandon it and join you. Let your will be done here in my life, in this earth, as if I were in heaven before your throne. Now I know that when you imagine departing from this world and being with the Lord, standing before his throne, that's a different looking scenario in your mind and your heart than when you kneel down and pray here in this world. Because here there's angst, there's anxiety, there's uncertainty, there's doubt, there's fear. We don't always have this kind of full awareness of all the majesty and glory and perfection of God. So our prayers can be kind of sheepish and dodgy and skeptical. But if you imagine God on his throne right before you, in all of his wonder and beauty and majesty, do you imagine asking for his will to be done with an amount of skepticism, doubt about his power, about his sovereignty, about his love? If he didn't love you, you wouldn't be here before him. You would be obliterated in his presence. But because of his love for you, you're covered in the righteousness of Christ, brought near, loved, cherished, held. God on his throne before you, asking God to do his will as you stare at him enthroned. That's a different feeling, isn't it? Let your will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. The will of God is, factually speaking, good, good. But our experience in life, our limitation, our perspective, our sinfulness, our weakness causes us to question that. Let the will of God be done on earth as authoritatively as it's done in heaven. Absolute delight in and satisfaction in the will of God. Now, in order to, in order to walk in that, to pray that with genuineness, with sincerity, to want God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, Understanding it requires absolute, wholehearted trust that his will is good. As a residual effect causes us to abandon the belief that our will is good. You have to do that. You have to come to a place where you understand my will may or may not be right. But his will is good. My will is shifting. Sometimes I'm faithful. Sometimes I'm fearful. Sometimes I'm tapped into God's desires. Sometimes I'm operating in the flesh. It's a bit of a toss-up for me. I want to walk by the Spirit, but I know I'm failing. I'm weak as long as I'm in this body of flesh. My will cannot be on par with God's will. God's will is always good. Now, 
I want, what my hope is right here is to deposit that in your mind, in your heart, and maybe that's something that you need to be presently aware of right now and wrestle with. Maybe there's something going on in your life that's just, you're just pleading with God for deliverance, for relief, for rescue, from some kind of circumstance, some kind of attack, some kind of sickness, weakness. And and you need to be presently aware that your will for deliverance, rescue, relief, may or may not be good. But God's will is good. And maybe that, that needs to be deposited in your mind and in your heart so that you'll be prepared for when the attack comes, when the weakness manifests itself, you will be able to pray, God, your will be done on, on earth as it is in heaven. If this has happened, if this is continuing to happen, I know it cannot be done apart from your sovereign will. So I accept. I accept as good, good for me. Now, how can we say that? How can we say that the things that hurt, things that attack, weakness, how can we say that these things are good, that they're the will of God? Here's how we can say that. Here's why Jesus teaches us to say this, just absolutely ascribing goodness and superiority to God's will, that it should always be done, that he should never be talked out of it, that we should never try to find a way around it. We just always want it to be done because God's highest purpose for us always is to conform us to the image of his son. Always, this is his purpose, this is his will. And he's willing to use all kinds of means, including suffering. In fact, if you just read five or six pages of the Bible, I guarantee you, you'll come across this. And you can find plenty of preachers who will dodge those passages and make you think that God's whole will is for you just to be comfortable and happy and enjoy all kinds of privileges and riches. That there would never be any kind of strain or difficulty But this is not the will of God. The will of God is first and foremost to conform us to the image of his son. And he is willing to cause us to suffer in order to accomplish that. And do you know what? If you have an earthly perspective, that is not good. But if you have a heavenly, eternal perspective, oh, that is good. That is so good. It is so good, isn't it so good that God would not limit himself to my criteria for what I can enjoy in order to accomplish eternally good purposes? That he is willing to destroy this body of flesh if it will save my soul? That God is willing to put me through trials and suffering so that I could endure? so that my character could grow, so that my hope could blossom, and my security in Christ would be something that is fixed, immovable, and that when I'm face to face with God, I can say, I saw what you did there. I saw what you did there. It was worth it. I agree with you now. I didn't know at the time, but I agree with you now that suffering was worth it. Thank you that your will was done on earth as it is in heaven. We can say that to God one day. I want to say it to God today. I want to be thankful that his will is done on earth as it is in heaven today so that I can just enjoy his process. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face various trials. Why? Knowing that it is producing in you perseverance and let perseverance have its full effect that the man of God may be complete. I wanna be complete. I wanna count it all joy knowing what it's producing. God's will is good, always. 
The more we grow in our satisfaction of that fact, the more we can enjoy life, the pursuit of Christ. The more we can say with Paul, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let your name be revered. Let it be magnified, glorified, called upon. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now finally, he asks for something. Give us this day our daily bread. Just give me what I need today. I I don't need a bunch in this life. I don't need to have a padded, comfortable kind of life. I just need you. Just give me what I need today. Forgive us our debts, that is our sins, our sin debt, as we have also forgiven our debtors or those who've sinned against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God never tempts people to sin, but Jesus says we should ask God to please recognize our weakness and lead us in a way that we can live righteously and not fall to temptation. Deliver us from evil, or you could translate that the evil one, literally Satan. Deliver us from his attacks. Let us not be overcome by him. The Lord's Prayer, how he taught his disciples to pray, is not a ritual that is to just be performed every day. Like, just get your day started with this prayer. And if you get your day started with this prayer, then God will be summoned. You know, you have this incantation and God is summoned and he has to do whatever you ask him to do as long as you say these things and then you can be happy and you can have bread. You carb fanatics are pumped about that. You can eat, you can be forgiven. What Jesus is calling us to here is a model of prayer that is rooted in sincere faith in a sovereign father. Sincere faith in a sovereign father. There's so much freedom in this prayer. You notice how non-specific it is in regards to please do this and this and this when it comes to things I think I need? Just this general please give me what I need today. Please forgive me of my sins. That's as specific as it gets. But when he talks about God, let your name be glorified. Let your kingdom come be established in the world. Let your will be done comprehensively. This is rooted in sincere faith in a sovereign God and there's absolute freedom that whatever God causes, whatever God allows is acceptable, enjoyable for the purposes for which God intended it, for the glory of his name, that we would be conformed to the image of Christ, that he would be called upon, revered, magnified. It's the whole purpose of this prayer. So again, this isn't just say these things to God every day. This is calling us to an attitude of drawing near to our Father and trusting Him and asking Him to do whatever He wants. Whatever He wants. Now, I'll I'll leave you with this in terms of prayer and absolute trust in the will of God and his sovereign care for us, his love for us, the enjoyment of what he causes slash allows in our life in order to accomplish this great purpose of sanctifying us, causing us to be more like Jesus. A few years ago, I found myself um, with a lot of contradiction in my heart. When, when I read this, when I think of the sovereignty of God and, and there was this thing in my flesh that kind of was repulsed by the idea 
that, that whatever suffering was going on in my life was the will of God, and I, I couldn't and, and scripturally shouldn't try to talk him out of it, but instead I should be embracing and asking for it, and I felt all the contradiction in my heart. Why do I recoil from that? Why does that feel threatening to me? That I would, in some silly way a human being would do, like kind of try to grant God permission to have his way in my life? But with some stipulations, I mean, as long as, I mean, of course, as long as you don't. I mean, you know that I just couldn't handle, so I, I know you wouldn't do that. I know that wouldn't be worth being conformed to the image of Christ. I don't need to talk you out of that, God, right? God, please don't do that. All of a sudden, prayers of God's will being done morph into please, please don't do this and please don't do that. Please rescue me, save me from this and that. What was that contradiction arising from, that confrontation, that recoiling from the idea of God's sovereign will being accomplished no matter what? I realized that it was just a real weakness on my part. A real weakness. And the weakness was this. Do I desire to be like Jesus as much as God desires me to be like Jesus? Is that my utmost purpose in life? To be conformed to the image of Christ? Do you know if it is? Then there isn't anything in life that can discourage me. There isn't anything that can derail me. I'm standing on a rock. I know what life is all about, but when my purpose in life, when my utmost highest goal, the thing I find most satisfaction in, is not to be conformed to the image of Christ, then God's will is very threatening, very threatening, because it is undeniable from his word that that is his purpose, and he will accomplish it by any means. So then in that moment when I realized this contradiction, this weakness in myself, let me tell you what I think led by the Spirit, my prayer became, and I've been praying it ever since then, and it's still hard to say the words. It still feels very threatening and my flesh hates when I pray it, but I want to pass it along to you because I think it's from the Spirit. The prayer goes like this. Lord, please don't withhold anything from me that would make me more like Jesus. Please don't withhold anything from me that would make me more like Jesus. That's scary to the flesh. Let me tell you why. Let's just be right out in the open. Because people die. People get sick. People get hurt. They get sinned against. Listen to me. Children suffer. Children suffer. And it's, it's gut-wrenching and horrifying. I don't like it. I don't like it. But if God says it's worth it, that we might be conformed to the image of Christ, then by God, it is worth it. It is worth it. Please, don't withhold anything from me that would make me more like Jesus. That has to be the prayer of a person who has abandoned any other joy. And I want to invite you to pray that with me. To find utter, solitary satisfaction in the will of God being accomplished. Let it be your utmost joy. And whatever comes in life won't dismay you 
won't shake you, won't knock you off of the rock that is Christ. It will only serve the purpose of our Father. And you'll know it. And you'll embrace it. And it will accomplish its goal and bear fruit for eternity. And God truly will look in your eyes one day, enthroned, and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Praying something like that, believing that, embracing that, is something that requires a deep abiding work of the Holy Spirit in us. It is absolutely unnatural. So, I, I'm, you know, I apologize if you showed up this morning hoping to be told that God is just so pleased with you at this moment that there's just nothing he would change about you. It's not true because he loves you. He wants you to be more like Jesus and me too. And he does love you absolutely where you are. Enough to do anything to conform you to the image of his son. Let's just pray about it together. God, we confess this morning that we, as Christians, as people who absolutely believe in Christ, in his death on the cross for us, in our place for our sins, that our faith in him causes us to be placed in him, that all of our sin is removed from us and all of his righteousness is credited to us, reconciling us to you, Holy Father. That none of us will ever be taken out of his hand, that the Holy Spirit has been given to us to seal us for the day of Christ so that when we die or when Christ returns, we know that we'll be found in him and we'll be accepted. We who believe these things, who confess these truths, also confess, Lord, our insincerity our lack of passion for your name, our lack of trust in you to do good. We confess our weakness, Lord. Father in heaven, let your name be revered in us. Let your kingdom come and be manifested among us. Let your will be done on earth among us as authoritatively and comprehensively as it's done in heaven where you're enthroned. Please don't withhold anything from us that would make us more like Jesus. And please work in us to embrace your will, to not just try to survive it, talk you out of it. Please give us today what we need, Lord, what we need to live and to glorify you. Please forgive us of our sins. Help us, Lord, even now to forgive all those who have sinned against us. fellowship is what we want your glory is what we want your image radiating from us is what we want Holy Spirit will you cause these to be sincere desires faithful desires in us that truly we would be Christians Christians 
little Christs. Thank you for your grace to us, Lord. Thank you for your patience with us. You're such a good father. Thank you for your closeness. Lord, in those times when I recoil from you because I'm afraid or I don't understand, thank you, Lord, that you remain faithful to me. I want to be like you. Help us to continue worshiping now in spirit and in truth and enjoying all that Christ has done to make these things possible. We pray in his name. Amen.